Welcome to Walter Edgar's Journal. With me on the telephone today is South Carolina author Dorothea Benton Frank, and we're talking to her from her home in New Jersey. First of all, Dottie, welcome back to the journal. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. I just finished my book tour last night. Well, I'm a tired woman, Walter. <laughs> you're a very you're the energizer buddy. I didn't think they still had book tours like that. I'm telling you, they got their money's worth out of me this year. There's something we haven't done in a while, Dottie, and that is to talk a little bit about you because when I opened the New York Times three weeks ago and saw that full-page ad for your latest book, All the Single Ladies, I wondered, did this young woman growing up on Sullivan's Island, going to Stella Maris Church and all of that, ever think that she would have a full-page ad in the book review section of the New York Times? Never in a million years, not in a million trillion years. Well, let's talk about where you went to school, all of that stuff, and how you met Peter. Oh, Lord. Well, you know, I went to Catholic school for 11 years, actually 12 years. Uh, I Actually, in my senior year, my stepfather died quite suddenly. And my father died, did you know, when I was very young. I was four and a half. In front of me, thank you very much. Oh, and, um, oh yeah. And then I found my stepfather dead when I was 17. So, I mean, if that doesn't make you a writer, I don't know what will. Either make you a a writer or, I don't know, an alcoholic maybe. But So then um, I had changed schools in my senior year because I was being bullied. I was a victim of bullies. Can you believe that? I was. And I just said, you know what? This is so stupid. I am not going to spend one more day surrounded by these people. And I withdrew from Bishop England High School on my own and registered myself at Moultrie High School, which was, you know, then Moultrie, now it's Wando. But back in the day, it was General William Moultrie High School. And my mother said, oh, well, I mean, (laughs) she was, I don't know, she was in a state of mind that, you know, was not the healthiest, I think, in those days. I went to Moultrie High School and graduated from there. I must say, I mean, I understand bullying, but given your personality, I'm surprised you just didn't smack them upside the head. I just... Unless... I think I took it personally. You know, I, I took it personally. I was horrified by it. Yeah. Well, I mean, I've never, I've never, I've never bullied anybody in my whole life that I remember. I, I don't think I have. You know, mean girls though, man. High school girls could be very, very mean. You, I've moved on. <laughs> yes, you have. But you know, the Sullivan's Island world that that you grew up in was eons removed from Sullivan's Island today. You know, I think it's all in your head, isn't it? I mean. When I go back to Sullivan's Island, I'm still in my world on Sullivan's Island. I mean, granted, I'm in a better house, but, you know, to me, it's the same place. It's You know, I put on my stupid pull-on shorts and a T-shirt, go out and sit on the beach or walk the beach, and it's the same to me, you know, except that people have dogs on leashes, (laughs) and the dogs actually have pedigrees. You know, when I was growing up on Sullivan's Island, all the dogs looked exactly the same. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and no one had a collar or a leash on their dogs. I mean, and no one ever took a dog to a vet unless it got hit by a car. And, you know, and, and there weren't even that many cars on the island then. So that's true. The traffic is much greater. But I'm down at the far end of the island, so I don't get involved in all that. Well, we've got you graduating from Moultrie High School. Yeah. And yeah. then where did you go? Well, then I went to the Baptist College in Charleston for about a year. And, again, my mother really did not want me to go to college. I mean, this is a crazy story, and it's going to make my whole family sound like a bunch of lunatics, but, you know, this is how it was. I mean, she was the daughter who stayed home and took care of her parents as they aged, and she really wanted me to do the same thing. And we, I mean, this was an all-out war, as you can imagine. I mean, I'd already been through enough. You know, I mean, in fact, I remember the morning that my stepfather died, my mother was in the kitchen taking plates down from the plate rail and dusting them. And she said, you know, people are going to be coming to the house. It sounds like a Tennessee Williams play, doesn't it? She said, they're going to be coming to the house. And then she said, I can't believe this is happening to me again. And I looked at her and I said, it's happening to me too. You know, but that never occurred to her. That never kind of sunk in. So there was this great divide between us for a very long time because I would not submit. You know, I wouldn't just stay home and take care of her. And so I began to lose weight. And, um, I was really kind of ill, to be honest, and a friend of mine, a girl named Jeannie Howe, her last name is now Archer, she was my great friend at Moultrie High School for that one year, and uh, she had lost her mother and I'd lost my stepfather, so we had this bonding experience over that, because, you know, death is something teenagers don't really wrap their arms around very well. You can't get your brain wrapped around it, I should say, because it's so weird, 
to a teenager, you know, to think about these things, unless they've lost a sibling or something, which is just very unusual at that age to have to deal with that kind of traumatic loss <clears throat> on top of everything else. And so we became – she came to see me at the Baptist College, and she said, my Lord, you look terrible. And I said, yeah, I'm not feeling so great these days. I'm not eating very well. And she said, well, you need to get out of here. And I told her what was going on with my mother. My mother was calling the school and saying, you know, will you please come home? And I was, no, I'm not coming home. I'm not going to do this. I'm going to go to college. And um, so anyway, Jeannie was going to a fashion school in Atlanta, Georgia, and I had worked on King Street, you know, in little junior clothing stores, boutiques, all through high school. And she said, why don't you come to school with me? And I said, Jeannie, you know, I don't know where the money's going to come for that. And she said, let me make a phone call. And she called this school. It's called the Fashion Institute of America. And the woman she spoke to was a woman named Dottie Fierst, who I think has long gone to her great reward. But anyway, Dottie Fierst heard my story from Jeannie, and she said, pack this girl up in a car and bring her to school, and we're going to take care of her. So I never paid any tuition or housing for two and a half years and came away with some little associate degree from this crazy little school that I went on to make a big career out of in the garment business. Remember that? Yeah, because I worked in the garment business for a million years. And then later on, I when I moved to New York and was here for a while, I started. I, I really started out to be a painter. This is crazy. I can't believe I'm telling you all this. Anyway, I was. I started taking classes at the Art Students League in New York, but my career then became very demanding, and so I had to drop out of that because I started going to Asia. So I was gone three or four months out of the year, so you couldn't really, you know, keep up with going to school at the same time. And then I got married. You know, I married Peter. Somebody, uh, we were introduced on a blind date, and um, you know, we've been married for 33 years. <laughs> Go figure. So. That's the story, and, and in between all of this, when Victoria, our daughter, was born, we then moved to New Jersey out of Manhattan because I couldn't figure out how to raise children in Manhattan because it was just too alien to me. So we bought a house in Montclair, and I've been here ever since. And so that's when I began doing volunteer work because obviously I couldn't work in the apparel industry anymore because you can't have a baby and be gone out of the country four or five months out of the year, right? Let's talk about what you did in the garment district, because I remember you worked there, but I don't remember what you did. Well, I started out working in a showroom, you know, selling wholesale to retailers. I represented a company that manufactured women's clothing. So the first company that I worked for manufactured like a collection sportswear company. Mm -hmm. And then I went to work for a knitwear company and manufactured sweaters. And I stayed there for eight or nine years until Peter and I got married and Victoria was born. We were, this was back in the days of telexes. Remember telex machines? So we would draw the garment out. You know, the designers would draw the garment out and give them the specifications. We had an agent in Hong Kong and in Taiwan and in Korea. Um, this is like this is a long time ago, like 1980. You'd telex this thing over, and then they would let you know that they received it. And then you would tell them what yarn you wanted them to make the sample in and then when all the samples were ready, we'd get on a plane and go over there and have a look at them. And then we'd decide, you know, what changes to make, what colors to make them, and how many pieces to put into work. So you're flying into China, I mean, to Hong Kong, as a young woman. Yeah, I was about 25 years old. You know, I thought I knew everything there was to know. Oh, God. <laughs> Long time ago. So I had a big time. And then with, with Victoria's arrival, I started doing community volunteer work, you know, and raising money for the arts and for education all around Montclair with a couple of organizations in New York and then later on in South Carolina, as you know. And then you decided to write your first book. And then I took, I, I decided, my husband was on the board at Bloomfield College, which is a very small little regional college here in Bloomfield, New Jersey. And they asked me to run a benefit for them. And I said, okay, well, you know, I'd be glad to do that. But I think I'd like to take a class down there just to see what the culture of the school is like. Because, you know, putting together a big fundraiser for four or 500 people that takes a whole year, you know. It's like planning a wedding, and uh, which, by the way, I'm also planning a wedding. Help me. And um, so we'll, I took we'll, this. We'll talk about that in a minute. That'd be fun. Okay. So I took this course in creative writing, and and uh, then my mother got sick and died, like all in like a six week period, which was stunning to me. You know, I I was not prepared for my mother's death. That's for sure. Had y'all kind of made up at this time, or were you... Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, this was years and years later. I mean, she was, you know, she was a sweet lady, but she just, 
I think she was just overwhelmed by life, you know. You know, and she, she did – I mean, like all parents, or most parents anyway, she did the best she could, you know, with what she was given, you know, to play with, right? I mean, cards are dealt. So anyway, she just um, – she was from just a very different generation. So, yeah, we were fine. We were fine. It was very – anyway, it was very sad, and I was taking this creative writing course, and then Lynn and Billy and Teddy and Michael, my sweet family, my siblings, decided it was time to sell Mom's house. And Peter Frank said he he declined to buy it for me. I thought, oh, gosh, I'm going to kill him. I was never going to divorce him, but I definitely thought about killing him. <laughs> um, not really, but you, you know what I mean. We had, a, we had a fight about the size of Texas. And um, I said, this is, you know, this is how things conspire, you know, to change your life. It's almost like you have no choice. You, you just walk out your door and suddenly there's a landslide, right? And um, I, it was around Christmas. My mother died in October, and this was around Christmas. I went to a local Walmart to grab some wrapping paper to, to mail out last-minute packages, and I saw a table of books that were on sale. I now know that they're called remainders, but back in the day I didn't know what they were. They were just books on sale. And I picked up one by a very popular, popular author, who's been writing for, I don't know, 30, 40 years. She must have a bazillion books in print. And I said, you know, what, what has she got? Because, of course, I'm thinking to myself, how am I going to go back to work and how am I going to find the money on my own to buy my mother's house? You know, because I didn't want to lose my sense of place in the world and, and my mother all at once. It was just too much. So I was considering writing because I was taking this creative writing class from a guy named Paul Ganega, who is a genius and um you know, I figured all I needed was one. I didn't need. I didn't need to go to college for twelve years to do this. Right? I'm just going to take one creative writing class at a local college, and then I'm going to go out and write a book. And that's that's basically what happened. So I read this book, and I said, "Shoot, I can do this. I can write a book like this in three months." And Peter said, "Well, let's see you try it." I said, "Ooh, them fighting words, baby." <laughs> so I sat down and wrote Sullivan's Island. I mean, this is really the truth. You know, I went to all the bookstores around town and and bought all the books on how to write a novel, you know, great first sentences, how to write the blockbuster, you know, everything. It was a dark and stormy night and all of that stuff. Right. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Oh, gosh. And, oh, and, my, and my first book that no one's ever seen, that no one will ever see, is called The Road to Valley Paradiso. It was terrible. <laughs> it's in a bottom drawer somewhere in this house. But... You did Sullivan's Island. I wrote Sullivan's Island simultaneously. And it caught everybody by surprise. Oh, I'll say it did. Even me. Because you sold how many copies? Oh, gosh, I don't know, a million and a half maybe? Yeah. I don't know. It's still in print. It's in its, like, 30th printing or something. I remembered a million and a half plus, which for a first-time publication ain't bad. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I mean, it's... Yeah, I mean it's not you know Harper Lee, okay, but it's um it's not bad. I was I was beyond thrilled, and the next thing I knew, I had a contract for two more books and a new career. So that's how the whole thing happened. And, and I mean, and, if that's not the hand of God, I don't know what is. And since that time, you have been producing at least a book a year, isn't that right? Yes, yes. One of two years, you produced two books. Well, I published my first book in two thousand. And it's 2015, and so I've published 16 books. So in one year there, I squeezed out The Christmas Pearl. Yeah, Christmas Pearl. In addition Pearl, to a, yeah. a regular full-length novel. So I don't know how I'm going to keep doing it. You know, I, I hope Starbucks doesn't go out of business or Dunkin' Donuts because I need the coffee, right? It's going to have to be fueled by caffeine. You're trying to sell your house. You've got a wedding planned, and you're writing yeah. another book. Yeah, that's about it. That about sums it up. Well, all I can say is... Good luck. Um. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Well, listen, you know something? She's my daughter. I want her to be happy. I think it's going to be a beautiful day. We've certainly done everything we can to, to you know, ensure that it will be. This has been a fun diversion because we really haven't talked about your growing up in a long time. And there's some things I, quite frankly, didn't remember. I mean, I knew you worked in New York, but I didn't realize about your going to fashion school and then working in the garment industry and exactly what you did before you became New York Times best-selling author, which is on every book, and it's true. It is, you know, and I tell you, it's the grace of God. It really is. I mean, I just, I can't explain it except to tell the story. I told the story last night to a group of people 
<clears throat> at a bookstore over in, um, where was I last night? Oh, Lord, I don't even remember the name of the town. But anyway, wherever I was, Northfield, New Jersey. And, and they just sat there astonished, you know, because it's not, I did not, I'm an, I'm an outlier, you know, what they call an outlier, somebody who really should not be where they are except, you know, by my own grit mm-hmm. and, you know, some good luck. That's for sure. That's, I mean, that's how it happened. Well, as I know from our long association, there's always a genesis of a fact or an incident that becomes the nucleus of your plot. And so what about all the single ladies? Well, several things. There are several things that came up. One was I read a study by AARP that said that baby boomers, of which I am one, most of us have saved less than $30,000 for retirement, you know, and that the vast majority of baby boomers expect their Social Security money to be their primary source of income when they retire. You know, good luck with that. And I thought, my goodness, you know, how, how long do I have to work before I can save enough money to retire? How long do all of us have to work before we can afford to retire? You know, and how are we going to retire? You know, what is that going to look like? Is that going to be, you know, I started thinking about, you know, single women that I know um, whose husbands have either died or left them for one reason or another. What are they going to do on a teacher's retirement money or a nurse's retirement? So what, what are they going to do? So I started thinking about different ways to retire. Remember the old term about Boston marriages mm-hmm. where women, you know, just moved in together and, I mean, there was nothing going on between them in an intimate way, but they were just friends, and they would pool their resources so that they could live. And I think that was during the Revolution, wasn't it? You know, Walter, you know the answer to this. The term Boston marriages became a 19th century term, women moving in together after the Civil War. After the Civil War, okay. Yeah. Thank Um, you for that. Of course, in an earlier day, if you were a single woman in the South, you could have moved in with your brother, or you stayed in the family, you weren't out on your own. I think there's going to be a return to that because people simply have not been able to put away enough money to retire or else you're going to work a lot longer. You know, you're going to have a second act or a third act. Yeah. So and that's one thing. So this, the, that, that started the ball rolling on this story. And, and then there were some other things that I was just interested in that I wanted to, to know about. And I thought, well, if I want to know about them, hopefully my readers want to know about it too. You know, one is green architecture. Like what does that all really mean? And, you know, senior living, like living in you know, assisted living facilities, are there? what's the news there on that front? Which, of course, there's the Greenhouse Project, which is pretty fabulous. And then I wanted to know about the difference between medical marijuana and recreational marijuana, which, of course, you know, is legal in Colorado. And, you know, which begs the question at the end of that discussion of just because something's legal doesn't mean it's moral. As you know, in South Carolina, medical marijuana, the oils, are legal. Well, you know, thank the Lord for that, because let me tell you, if I had a child with seizures, I'd be online, you know, for sure. Recreational is not legal. You know, I'm like Switzerland on this. I really don't have an opinion (laughs) about legalizing recreational marijuana. I think it's, I mean, it's not for me, that's for sure. I'm too old for that nonsense. So in this book, you're you're dealing with contemporary social issues, and in your last one, you dealt with spousal abuse, women being abused, which, of course, is a very pertinent topic in South Carolina and won the Post and Courier a, pu- a Pulitzer Prize. I was so proud. I was so proud of them. It's wonderful. You know, it's interesting to me as you have moved into contemporary topics, there are topics that didn't used to get discussed. I mean, you you know, everybody falls in love and they live happily ever after. That's not what, well. <laughs> That's not really what's going on. No. You know, and this whole thing about spousal abuse, Walter, i got to tell you, when I found out that South Carolina was number one in the nation where more women die at the hands of the men who are supposed to love them and protect them, I could not believe it. I could not believe it. And when I went out on the road with that book, I think you and I spoke before I went on the road last year, I, I raised an awful lot of money. I raised a lot of money. Through, you know, every book stop where I went, HarperCollins sent books for the local women's shelter. Mm-hmm. And I brought in a representative from whatever the local shelter was and let them talk and hand out, you know, pamphlets. And I mean, I don't know how much money we raised. I think 50000 or more. But that's pretty good for, you know, an old baby boomer on the road selling books in, you know, Oklahoma. <laughs> right? So, <laughs> right. <laughs> oh, goodness gracious. Yeah. The problems of single women growing old involves, at least in this case, three younger women and one, you have a wonderful matriarch in this. Miss 
Trudy, I love her to bits. Yeah, she's great. She's great. Well, she's got a little. She's got a thing or two to teach these young chicks in their fifties. <laughs> and one of the things that I really enjoyed about the book is, for the first time, the real villain in the piece is a woman. Right? Isn't she terrible? <laughs> you know, here's what's really funny that most people don't know, and this is the inside joke, you know, because there's always the inside joke. Most of the characters in this book are named after people who work for HarperCollins, and the villain was named after the president of the publishing company, uh, the president of William Morrow, and <laughs> then she got all embarrassed, and she said, I can't do this because then all the other writers that we, you know, employ, they're going to want to do the same thing, and I, you know, do it to my mother. So now the villain is named after Liot Spellick's mother named Wendy. So it's kind of funny. And then some of the other characters in there are either um, people who gave money to a charity to be a character in the book or also just friends of mine. How about let's talk our listeners through the book without giving everything away at the end? Well, I mean, it, it all starts in assisted living facility where they're caring for a young woman who's dying of cancer who one of the nurses has become quite fond of, and she's also very fond of her two friends who are there diligently, you know, day and night sitting by their friend's side doing everything they can do for her. Anyway, she finally succumbs to this cancer, which is that's, that's in like page two or something, so that's not really giving much away. And then she's sort of startled, and she realizes how much this, a part of her life this poor girl has become or had become, and you know, now she's going to lose, she not only lost her favorite patient, she's going to lose the friends too, and she starts thinking about her own life and, and her friends. You know, what does she, what does she have? What, what are her assets here, you know? And there's not much, you know. She realizes that she's living on a very thin budget. She has a daughter. She's been a single parent almost the child's entire life because her husband left her to become a doomsday prepper. <laughs> this is so funny. He builds bunkers in the you know Pacific Northwest for people who think the end is coming. He's only ever sent her $20 in a lottery ticket for Christmas for the last 23 years while she was putting this child through college. She has a relationship with her parents who live in Hilton Head, and her mother is kind of like the, the chief hen. She pecks her to death. You know, she's getting – every time she calls her parents, she gets pecked to death. So anyway, she strikes up the friendship with the two surviving friends, and, you know, then they – begin their walk down the story, right? Yeah. Which begins to unfold later in a big old beach house on the Isle of Palms. Well, someone said it was a grand and beautiful beach house. And, you know, I never described it that way in the book. In fact, in my mind, it was dilapidated and needed about 500 gallons of paint, right? And mm. new screens and the whole nine yards. But someone thinks that just because it's a house on the island, that I guess it must be quite beautiful. Well, it's not. But anyway, nonetheless, they seek refuge with each other and they start walking on the beach together in the morning and she has a little dog and Miss Trudy, the older lady, is there giving advice and so and then, you know, Lisa, this main character, her life really begins to unravel. You know, the friends rally around, right? They rally around. Yeah, her daughter figuratively kicks her in the teeth and runs out to to help daddy on a legal but dubious business in Colorado. Picks up an even more dubious partner You've got these three women, and you weave these rather disparate lives together. It's because of their need. You know what I mean? It's friendship born of need. They need friends. They need each other. Suzanne needs to feel like she's in charge. You know, she needs to feel like she's got it all together. And, you know, she's been burned very badly in a relationship years ago, and she's just not going to go there again. And she's happy just to be single, and she doesn't think she needs anybody, you know, a romantic interest in her life. Carrie, the other one. She can't live without a man, you know, and a sack of Krispy Kreme donuts, that's for sure. <laughs> so so that's the story. You know, you've got these three very different women. You are correct about that. But they all bring something to the table that the other one doesn't have, you know? I mean, Carrie, I think, is the eternal optimist. You know, Suzanne is very protected. She, is very, she has a very hard shell around herself that she won't let anyone in. And Lisa's just kind of out there, you know, screaming her head off in, inside of her head, you know, like, oh, no, what's going on? Well, I'm sure you're by now you're working on your next book, right? I am indeed. And you know what? I'm writing a sequel to this book because I'm not finished with these characters. I love these characters. 
I mean, I, I, I can almost walk in a room and see them. So and there's still a lot of chatter going on. So they're going to get their chance at a second a second story well, next summer. Well, I look forward to that because you left a, a nice cliffhanger at the end. And so I'm interested to see how it's going to all come out in the sequel. Well, and you know, a lot of the players in this next sequel who did not have a lot to say in the first book, they'll have a lot more to say in the second book. For example, Marianne, her daughter, mm-hmm. plays a much bigger role, and so does David Harper. It's a wonderful story, and of course, the Low Country is as much a character in this book as any human being. Always. But there, there was one line that caught my attention because it goes back to several books ago. They were praying for a miracle, and miracles didn't happen, whereas in an earlier book, if you remember, miracles did occur. Well, miracles do happen. The problem is you can't pray for them and ha- get the results all the time. You know, it's it's not a result of fervent prayer. They're arbitrary, you know, at least in my research. That's, but they do happen. You know, they absolutely, they're inexplicable things that happen around us all the time. Yeah. Well, You've got to know where to look for the signs and wonders, right? Yeah, right, absolutely. That's right. Thank you so much, Dorothea Benton-Frank, for being with us today on The Journal. This is Walter Edgar's Journal. Coming up next is a conversation with Mary Alice Monroe. With me in the Scanner studio today is best-selling low country author Mary Alice Monroe, and we're going to be talking about the last of her low country trilogy series, the summer's end. And so, Mary Alice, welcome back to the journal. Oh, thank you. And you know how I love to come for a chat with you. Well, we'll end up talking about the summer's end, but let's kind of review the, the trilogy, trilogy and why you decided to do a trilogy, because this is the first time that you have linked characters like this. Well, it's interesting. When I wrote The Beach House and The Beach House Memories and, and let's see, some swimming lessons, I have to remember, that was a trilogy that I never intended to be a trilogy. As I continue my work with sea turtles, every five years I had something more to say. Mm-hmm. So I used the same family. This was the first time I actually sat down and wrote a trilogy knowing a beginning, middle, and end would happen in sequential form. So it was a challenge. And, you know, I've written a lot of books, and you look for challenges in writing. And the real reason I did it was when I began my research seven years ago on Atlantic bottlenose dolphins. I knew I wanted to write a book that had impact and, you know, traditional meaning as well. You know, we love our dolphins. Who doesn't go out and look at the sea and want to see that dorsal fin? We all love dolphins. But I didn't want to write Flipper. So I began my research, and I gained so much information. It was such an iconic animal that I knew I had too much to say for one novel. So that's why I wrote a trilogy. Well, let's do start at the beginning because Penelope the dolphin's there, and she's, <laughs> she, 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 she's in all three. But th- this is more than the story of, I mean, I, I know that the dolphins, the natural mm-hmm. life of the low country mean a great deal to you. Mm-hmm. But so does the whole concept of family and changing yes. generations and how one generation appreciates or doesn't appreciate things. Let's kind of carry the trilogy through. Let's All set right. the original scene. That's a good way to approach this because I can't. I look at the three books as a whole, mm-hmm. one book, and each book may focus on one particular daughter. There's three granddaughters and a grandmother. That's the tentpole of the of the series. Whenever I begin any book, I don't know what the story is. Mm-hmm. I always have a species first, and it's some sort of a a clue from heavens or intuition or something that it's time to write about this species now. Mm -hmm. For example, I know I want to write a book about manatees someday, but it's not stirring in me. It's a kind of knowing, Mm -hmm. very intuitive. And I believe I told you when we talked about the Summer Girls a while back, that which is the first book in the trilogy, that I'm on the board of the aquarium, and we were having a meeting with Dr. Pat Fair from NOAA here in Charleston, and Steve McCullough from Florida Atlantic University, and Philippe Cousteau, who's the grandson of the great Jacques. And they were alerting us to the fact that we had a serious situation with the Atlantic bottlenose dolphins, our beloved dolphins that live here year-round. We refer to those as the resident dolphins. And we learned that in our Charleston estuarine waters, that means the large 
the creeks and rivers, the Stono, the Wando, the, the Ashley. The Ace Basin. Yes. 49% of that resident population is deemed not healthy by NOAA. They're not, sick is a strong word to use, but they don't meet the standards for health. And this is known by a long-term sister study with uh, Charleston and Florida of our resident population of blood assays, and they monitor that population every year. I was electrified when I heard this. I knew I had a story to tell, and Philippe even said, Mary Alice, please write a book about dolphins. We need that information out there. So I began research with Pat Fair, who is a wonderful, brilliant woman here in Charleston um, at NOAA, and she became my mentor. And she took me out on all the estuarine waters where they photo ID, which is to take photographs of the dorsal fins, where, which is like a fingerprint. Each dolphin's fin is unique? Uniquely marked. And they take a photograph and they run it against the photographs in the database, and that's how they can identify the dolphins and keep and monitor the population. Mm-hmm. And then every five or so years, they do a blood assay where they actually go out and capture live dolphins and take blood and other um, DNA material so that it can ascertain the health of that dolphin. And I was able to do that uh, two summers ago. And I'll tell you, that was a safari. And that's a whole nother, I could talk an hour and how exciting that was. But it was also um, made me appreciate the difference between what is wild out there, the dolphins that are in our waters that are wild, versus those dolphins that I've worked with at the Dolphin Research Center in Grassy Key, Florida, and at the Moat Marine Cetacean Hospital for Rehabilitation that are in human care facilities. Mm-hmm. And so I came, I put all this together and I create a story based on what I've learned from the dolphins that did, and I do this with sea turtles, I've done this with birds of prey. What is this, what is it that I really wanted to say in a book to my readers that I tell you through plot and characterization? And for the dolphins, I learned three main lessons. And that is one, dolphins excel in communication with their clicks and their whistles and their echolocation, which the Navy still studies today. Did you know that mother dolphins give a whistle to the calf at birth, which we refer to as a signature whistle, which is akin to a name? Mm -hmm. They're that kind of smart. The second lesson I learned was that dolphins have very strong family and community bonds. And the third, which was probably the hardest for me to learn because I'm a hard worker with my to-do list and all that, I think a lot of us are, was to remember to live in the moment, to laugh, to eh, 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 like the dolphins do. When you see a dolphin off the side of your boat when you're out in the water, Walter, that's pure pleasure. They're racing or in a a wave. That is pure pleasure. So dolphins have that ability to enjoy. So I took that all and I created a novel where the characters would have communication problems, a family that's disparate, non-communicative, which many of us are experiencing, myself included. Um, I put it on Sullivan's Island because I wanted it to be a historic South Carolina Charleston family. The eldest is Eudora, who lives in Somerville. The second eldest is Carson in L.A., and the third is Harper. And the father was a wannabe author. And Harper lives in New York. In New York. So if you can guess where I got the names from. (laughs) I had so much fun with that. Eudora is obviously... um, Eudora Welty. Eudora Welty with a sense of place. And Carson, Carson McCullers. And of course, the very, very hot topic today, (laughs) Harper Lee. And it was so much fun to play with that. They're all half-sisters. They're half-sisters. And Carson has attachment disorder. Of course, I don't say that to the reader. I have to show the signs and symptoms. But she has a difficulty um, connecting and with relationships. And Harper is has a problem that I think everyone listening has, knows someone like this. She's engaged on the phone. She's engaged on her on the internet with her computer, 
but she doesn't know how to engage on a one-to-one. She's connected to the internet all the time. And frankly, I think that's an issue Mm -hmm. that needs to be discussed. I'm concerned about my children and even my friends who can't carry on a conversation without being distracted by the Mm -hmm. bing of the phone and downright stopping the conversation (laughs) to answer that phone. We're tethered to that internet. Again, they all have the same father, three very different mothers. Harper's mother is an English aristocrat. Yes. Okay, so that's another dimension to her. And Carson's mother was sort of a artsy type. Well, Carson's mother um, died very young, and that's part of the issue she has to deal with, that sense of abandonment. But alcoholism runs very strong in Carson, her father, and as well as her mother. And that's one of the issues in the book one. Mm-hmm. Um, I focused on Carson in the first book, mm-hmm. and that's The Summer Girls. And in that book, all the girls get together with the tentpole figure of all three books, Mama. She is the strong character that goes through all three books, the grandmother. This is is the grandmother. The grandmother, Marietta Muir, who's an old Charleston family and moved with her husband to retire on Sullivan's Island, and he died soon after. And she lived with her caretaker maid, who became actually more a companion friend, Lucille. Mm for the last 50 years, and she brings her girls back to Sullivan's Island, where they went every summer. I think a lot of us went somewhere every mm-hmm. summer to visit with our grandmother or our favorite aunt or a collection, of, a, a place in the mountains or the sea. And so this is how I start the story of Mama, who now at 80, mm-hmm. she's got to sell the historic home. And that's a heartbreak, not only for her, but for the family who loves this place this of, of summers. Mm-hmm. And that's why she called her girls home, the summer girls, the girls who came every summer. Mm-hmm. And so when you bring girls or any family together, the first thing that happens, of course, is when you get together, you fall back into your roles of the nursery. Mm-hmm. And you're not that same person you were in the nursery. So there's those uncomfortable moments. But also, Carson herself, who's the primary character in the book one, is learning to deal with the family curse, which is alcoholism. She has to deal with that in book one. So there's communication and the connection with this one beguiling dolphin, Delphine, who becomes a character not only in this book, but in all three books. She carries the theme of each book. So that's book one. And we answer the story question for Carson. In book two, you're dealing with Eudora, who is uh, the oldest, and she's what I call a failed Southern belle. And the second, the title of the second book? Oh, thank you, is The Summer Wind. So the summer girls, now the summer wind. Mm-hmm. And I think Eudora's the character, Dora, that you won't like in book one. She's that one who always has a superior attitude, who's always going to correct you, you know, tell you, you watch, you're wearing white shoes. It's not Memorial Day yet. (laughs) (laughs) You know, she's that kind of girl, the one you don't want to go to lunch with. And uh, you explore why she's that way in book two. Well, and of course, she's going through a divorce. Well, her facade of being the only married daughter. That was her claim to fame. Um, She looks at Carson, who's athletic and loves the water and beautiful. And she looks at Harper, who's intelligent and went to the best schools and is rich on top of it. And here I am. All I have is my marriage, but I'm not thin enough. I'm not smart enough. My husband wants a divorce. My house in in Somerville is only standing because the termites are holding hands. And my my son, the great heir, is autistic. And so she's crumbling. And there actually is a syndrome. It's cardiomyopathy, which is called broken heart syndrome. She collapses under the weight of this sense of failure. And deeper still... It's rooted in shame. And this made me feel such empathy for this character. So for Eudora, in her Eudora, Mm -hmm. like her namesake, she learns about her sense of place, where she belongs, and discovers her own voice. And so the theme of the book is healing, Mm -hmm. because in book one, the dolphin carried the theme of communication. And I wanted to reveal, not by pointing my finger, but by showing the natural consequences of what happens 
when we humans feed wild dolphins mm -hmm. and lure them to our boat or our dock. I don't have to say anything. The reader experiences it for themselves. And in book two, this dolphin was flown to Florida to re for rehabilitation. And um, so that's the theme of book two. This is Walter Edgar's journal, and I'm talking with Mary Alice Monroe about her latest book, The Summer's End, which is the third and final book of her Summer Girls trilogy. You know, going back to um, why I want the readers to experience it firsthand through the eyes of the characters, I really believe in the power of story. Mm -hmm. My job is to be a storyteller. I want people to care about my characters and to turn. When you turn the pages, you want to find out what's happening to Carson mm -hmm. or to Mama. But that th theme of the novel is based on what I've learned. So I know the readers are going to get the education painlessly. And when the reader can learn about a dolphin because they see it through the eyes of Carson or Mama and the passion and the emotion, when, when they see that dolphin wound up in fishing line and the screams and hear it, they feel it viscerally. That emotion is go what's going to help them to care. Then I hope they go to the libraries or the bookstores and buy nonfiction, and they understand why, then, we say don't feed. So we're not being dictatorial. There's a reason behind the research. And I really believe when the readers care, they act. That's true heroism. And I believe that the readers will move. I think with the, the whole trilogy, um, moving on with the third book we'll talk about and also moving on to the next one, the bottom line for a lot of all the books and for our concern here in Charleston, going back to the study of dolphins in our stream waters, is the water quality. And that was the, the main concern for book three. I'm really concerned why 49% of our dolphins are deemed not healthy. It's because the water, I believe, is not healthy. That is something I'm going to continue writing about, not only in this book, but in future books. I think that's a core issue for all of us right now, not only for the dolphins, but for the birds. And of course, anytime we're looking at high-level predators, we're looking at the indicators for human health. Well, you've dealt with raptors, you've dealt with turtles, you've dealt with dolphins. I guess maybe humans, you're next in yeah. species. <laughs> well, Indirectly, that's in all the books. Well, with book three called The Summer's End, and in this book, um, it's Harper. This was also about water quality as Delphine is going to be released back into the water. And we have questions of not only will she, will, will Carson or the women feed the dolphin again, but also the quality of the water. And I'll be delving into that a little bit in the next book. I am continuing the series. For me, when I wrote book three, it was the first time I actually had to end a trilogy. I had said so much and so many different stories. I actually had to tie the knots of all three books. It was harder than I anticipated. I imagine, I, I put it akin to being a surgeon when you make a cut mm -hmm. and all the blood vessels are starting to bleed and you can't say, oh, well, I'll leave that one. Untied. You have to be sure, because you know I'll get a letter from someone saying, but what happened to the dog? <laughs> you know, Hobbs, where's Hobbs? So I was very careful, and up until the very end, um, it was a very expensive ending because I actually emailed my editor and said, wait, we have one more change to make when the book was in production, which can be expensive. But for me, hitting the right note, not just for the girls, but for the woman who was the like I said, the tentpole, the primary character, the, the thread that held all three books together, the grandmother, Mama. I had to, what did she have to say at the end of this one remarkable summer? And in the course of writing this book, all five, seven years of research and writing, I became a grandmother four times over. <laughs> and I learned what being a grandmother meant. And I had wanted to share... At the end, my feeling that being a grandmother really is our second chance, not just at being the fun grandmother. You know, I, I know I fly in and I, Mambo, yay, you're here. What did you bring me? <laughs> right, the little pirates. And 
I love that fun aspect. But more, and this is what I learned and what I journeyed through it, the novel, myself as a writer, that it's your second chance to pay attention. Because when we were mothers, I remember my mama saying, Mary Alice, don't clean so much. Don't worry about the house. You won't remember the house or how clean it was. You won't even remember your address. But you will regret not spending more time with the kids. And I realized she was right. I would give my left arm for a day with my children at three and five and seven again. But I can't, but I can now with my grandchildren. And it's not just the fun, but getting on the floor with them. And what are you good at? Mm -hmm. How can I help you? And that's what Mama did with each three of her granddaughters. She knew she had not been the best mother with her own son. She enabled him. She mm -hmm. learned that word. That didn't exist when she was young. Yes, but she, she knew what enabling meant she, now. She bailed him out of every one of his problems whether it was and a made drunken excuses. spree or, or his finances. She always was bailed there. Bailed him out. And as a result, had less to leave her granddaughters. and But also realized that she her role was to find out what is your passion? What are you good at? How can I facilitate things to guide you but not tell you what to do? I learned this watching Mama, and at the very end, that was Mama's lesson. And Granny Jane's, oh, I have to tell you, I had more fun writing Granny Jane's, who the, is... <laughs> this is Harper's other... Her, her. The British grandmother. Yes. And so I had so much fun with the southern grandmother, who is a bit haughty, and then the haughty British grandmother comes, and the little digs that they said to each other all the time, I laughed out loud, and I've never done that in a book before. So I had so much fun writing this into the story, and that's the generational aspect that we talked about at the very beginning of our conversation, where what the grandmothers might expect for their granddaughters' lives may not be any longer what the granddaughters want, those expectations. So there's learning on both sides, and that was the wrap-up of the trilogy. And leading into the next book I'm writing now, which I didn't plan on, but it's called A Low Country Wedding. Oh, okay. And, you know, there's an engagement or, or two in mm -hmm. this last book, and it takes place a year later, and talk about family dynamics, anyone who's thrown a wedding knows there's a lot of family <laughs> dynamics. <laughs> so we are the number one, Char Charleston is the number one wedding destination. How could I resist? So we will be having a low country wedding and you're invited. <laughs> uh, okay. All right. Well, I, I want to go back to the, to the beginning and you've got these three young women in their twenties. They're all fairly close together in age. Yes. Um, and Mama gets them back to the beach house, and then she announces that she wants them all to spend the summer. Yes. Well, Harper has a job in New York. Carson has a job um, in L.A., and Eudora has a house in right, and more or less says, you can't leave. in Somerville. So... Let's cut, since that book's been out of what? Let's cut, how does she how does she convince them to stay? Now she there's a there's jewelry involved too. Yes, there's jewelry. Is always jewelry. <laughs> um, well, I think it's again one of the I like to talk about Southern traditions and values. And um, throughout the whole book, the grandmother really is concerned that not only will they lose touch with the one another, but they'll lose touch with what Seabreeze represents to them, their traditions, their family, their family bonds. And so she knows this is her last chance to get these girls together. And so she is manipulative in book one. She hasn't learned her lesson completely. And she basically tells them, you're out of the will if you don't stay. And um, just by co coincidence and serendipity, and that does happen in life, yeah. where each of the girls could find the time. And, and they did it in their own ways. Um, Harper, the youngest, and this is her issue in book three, she has a very narcissistic mother, a mother who believes that her child exists to serve her, not mm -hmm. the other way around, which, so despite all her wealth and her education, she's a child who never feels good enough. 
is always trying to please the mother. And most of us can know at least one person like that. She can be 50 years old and still trying to make Mama happy. And at the book one, Harper breaks off with Mama out of a fit of fury. And Carson... Carson lost her job, and she sees it as great. I've got a summer with not paying rent, so it just worked out for her. And Eudora's husband wants a divorce, so it works out that all three girls are in transition. It's like a lifeboat that all three girls are on for the summer. And it just it's a remarkable summer of growth and reconnection and connection with not just each other, but connection with their grandmother and what it is about Seabreeze and being in the South and being in the Low Country that is important to them, that they can draw strength from, so that at the end of summer, wherever they go, okay. they carry that. Well, Mary Alice Monroe, author of The Summer's End, the third of her trilogy about the Low Country and its healing powers on a group of very strong willed young women, thanks for being with us today on the journal. Thank you so much. This is Walter Edgar, and I hope you enjoyed today's journal. I know I did. Mary Alice Monroe and Dorothea Benton Frank are longtime friends. They're great conversationalists, and it's always not just a pleasure, but a lot of fun to sit down and talk with them on the journal. They both have new books. Dottie Frank's is All the Single Ladies, and Mary Alice Monroe's latest is The Summer's End. This is Walter Edgar. Join me next week for more of The Journal. Walter Edgar's Journal is a production of South Carolina ETV Radio. The producer and engineer is Alfred Turner. Production of this program is made possible in part by listener contributions to the ETV Endowment of South Carolina. The views and opinions expressed on Walter Edgar's journal are not necessarily those of South Carolina ETV Radio.